0: This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, June 23rd, 2014. I'm Caleb Brown. It seems like it's never a good time to debate one's own gross errors of judgment. In the case of the Iraq War, however, understanding the errors of those who took us to war will help the United States choose its wars more judiciously. Chris Preble, Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, comments. Former Vice President Dick Cheney, uh, big Iraq war booster and supporter and planner, uh, has been very critical of both Rand Paul of Kentucky and President Obama on this Iraq withdrawal about not paying proper attention to the region and has suggested that President Obama did something wrong with respect to departing from Iraq. But the question is here, didn't President Obama pretty faithfully follow the Bush administration's plan for withdrawing our troops from that region?
1: That's right. Uh, That's the inconvenient truth that Dick Cheney and others like him would prefer that we don't focus on. Um, President Bush and Iraqi Prime Minister Nouri al-Maliki negotiated an agreement at the end of 2008 which stipulated that U.S. forces would be withdrawn from Iraq by the end of 2011. So what Cheney and other critics – uh, are really saying is that they want – they wished that Barack Obama had uh, departed from that agreement and decided to leave US forces in Iraq longer. Now, th- there is some truth to the claim that uh, had US forces been left behind after 2011, you could have negotiated a different agreement. That's basically what they're talking about is that the United States, the Obama administration should have negotiated something else. Uh, but I think that ignores a couple of critical points. One, I think it's highly unlikely given Iraqi politics that Maliki or anyone else uh, who was prime minister of, of Iraq could have uh, agreed to leaving U.S. forces in Iraq with the kind of critical legal protections that we afford U- that other U.S. allies and other countries that host U.S. forces routinely grant. Uh, U.S. troops. The, the, the basic line is called extraterritoriality and the argument is that if a, a U.S. service member commits a crime, uh, they're tried by a U.S. justice, by the military justice system or by the U.S. justice system but not by the host countries. Uh, it's a contentious issue in some places but that's really a kind of critical step. The other point so, – so what they're really saying is you know, had they – we should have left troops in Iraq under Iraqi justice, which I think is absurd and I think most Americans would find that absurd. The other problem with the argument that we should have left US forces in Iraq is that somehow a residual force, be it 10 or 20 or more thousand troops, would have – somehow influenced Iraqi politics and made Nouri al-Maliki do things that he was not willing to do in 2008 or 2010. And I think that's also absurd. At a point when we had far far more forces in Iraq, we did not have sufficient leverage and influence over him to cause him to do what we wanted him to do, which is – and again, the political compromises that we wanted is for him to sell out his allies and to make make nice with his enemies, his political enemies. And I think it's hard, particularly hard in a, in a parliamentary system, to convince someone to do that. Not surprising Maliki has, has not chosen to do that. He did not cho- choose to do that. We had tens of thousands of troops in Iraq. I think it's absurd to think that he would have done so if we had le- left a few thousand U.S. troops or even 10,000 or more. The U.S. mission in Iraq changed over time.
0: Uh, it came to be uh, creating the conditions necessary for a reconciliation, for a political solution within that country to restore stability. Right, And we have
1: Nouri al-Maliki who apparently is not doing a very good job of that. But he's popular enough. This is the thing we forget about. He's popular enough with enough people in Iraq – that he can continue to hold on to power. And so when I hear people talk about, well, we need somebody else uh, to rule the country, uh, govern the country, whatever word you want to use, who would that be? And who exactly would have the standing to command the respect of all the different confessional confessional groups inside of Iraq? Um, I mean, it's it's become so absurd that we've actually heard Ahmed Chalabi's name being floated by some people. It's so utterly ridiculous. Um, This was the man who was largely responsible for the purge of Sunnis uh, from Iraqi politics in the first place. Uh, Albert Brooks, the comedian, not to be confused with Arthur
0: Brooks, recently said, we need someone in Iraq who can control the insurgency, stand up to Iran, allow
1: us to fly over. Oh, right, we killed that guy. (laughs) Um, Not the comedian. Um, I think – look, there were many reasons why the United States – was containing Saddam Hussein throughout the 1990s, Uh, you know, punishment for the invasion of Kuwait uh, to prevent him from, you know, kind of keeping him in his box. But it's also true that in the 1980s during the Iran-Iraq War, uh, (laughs) Henry Kissinger said, it's a shame they both can't lose. I mean, so so there is this problem, kind of endemic uh, in in the U.S. Iraq relationship, is that we wanted somebody strong enough, uh, but not someone that was too strong. And and again, I think Nouri al Maliki has, as much as we might wish it were otherwise, he has a, a, it appears quite considerable political support. Uh, and so finding a replacement, and, and again, how how exactly is the United States going to do that? And in any case, if
0: the United States is left, I think, to to, uh, ride a weird line where we have to find somebody who is capable. Uh, but who is not this
1: is not viewed as a U.S. puppet, right? And how do you, how is that? How do we do that, right? And this is not a problem that's unique to Iraq, of course. This is a problem whenever the United States is supporting an indigenous government, even a government that's trying, you know, from from the best from our best assessment, is is trying to do the right things. Uh, the, there's an insurgency for a reason. It's because some number of people. Uh, in that country does not feel that the government is, re- is representing their interests. That's the case in Iraq. It was the case in Vietnam. It's been the case in other countries where we've supported an indigenous government. And so uh, it is a kind of catch-22 that the more we do to support that government, the, the weaker in some respects it becomes. Megan Kelly on Fox has found a rich minefield in
0: asking uh, people like John Bolton and Dick Cheney to discuss what's happened uh, a decade ago and finding them, of course, unwilling to do so. Uh, Dick Cheney, I believe he was on uh, Meet the Press or one of the Sunday talk shows says, if we spend our time debating what happened 11 or 12 years ago, we're going to miss the threat that is now growing and that we do face. Rand Paul, with all due respect, is basically an isolationist. He doesn't believe we ought to be involved in that part of the world. I think it's absolutely essential. He said this on uh, ABC's this week, which uh, again, we have this word isolationist come back right. that that is ex- – we're expected to believe means you do not want any kind of engagement, any kind of engagement right. with the rest of the world.
1: But when they say engagement, it's typically a military engagement. Right. No, I think it's a fundamental – it's a technique that has been used with some effect by interventionists over the years to, to – to, tar anyone who criticizes them or resists their calls for various wars, to tar them with the isolationist label, I think it is, uh, it is certainly misleading. And and I think it is having diminished, uh, it's diminishing utility. It's, it's, it's finding, you know, it's harder to use that term when the people using it are seen as interventionist. So I mean, you can engage in the world, you can engage in the world without uh, uh, engaging militarily and I think that's the key to understanding the differences and the criticisms of the interventionists. And, and, and I've, I've heard other people say if the interventionists are, are worried that the United States is less willing to go to war, they really have no one to blame but themselves. It's they're, they're the ones that have revealed the limits of U.S. military power um, and, and what we should have done is, uh, is preserved our strength militarily and use it only in those instances when it's absolutely essential to U.S. national security, when the military has an achievable mission. Uh, and, and so to put any criteria at all uh, on, on the use of force, uh, you know, earns you the label of isolationist, I presume, from people like Dick Cheney and, and John Bolton. Uh, but of course, they're the ones who are now on the hook for the, the interventions of the last 12 years that uh, have ended so badly for the United States
0: we've discussed this before and i think i've said this every libertarian i told you so moment has is associated with a horrible disaster mm-hmm. and that is what is going on right now in iraq the impulse to fix a problem that the united states was in many ways responsible for creating is a strong one sure. and not a completely legitimate one
1: uh, right and and i i'm not disputed there may be in this particular case in case of iraq right now there may be Opportunities, uh, unique opportunities to apply force, targeted force against some really bad guys, ISIS, the the you know the terrorist organizations that's running around Iraq. The danger is that even if that targeted force succeeds in uh, killing uh, or significantly degrading their capabilities, uh, we're going to be seeing this is this is David Petraeus's word is basically being seen as the uh, the, the Shiite air force right They're, that we're just serving the interests of a Maliki government that is not broadly legitimate. So you might succeed in blunting ISIS's assault, which would be a good thing for, for US security as well as Iraqi security. Uh, but it doesn't ultimately solve the underlying problems of Iraqi politics. Air power can't do that. Um, and, um, and so I, I think that that there will be continued calls for the United States to, to fix the problems in Iraq, ignoring that that's what exactly what we were trying to do for 11 years in Iraq. And – or 10 years, what what have you. And the the reason why it didn't work is not for lack of trying. It's because fixing failed states, rebuilding countries or in fact building them from scratch – is really, really hard. And it's especially hard when you're 8,000 miles away and you don't speak the language and you don't know the culture and the people don't really like you very much in the first place. So I don't think we should be surprised that these uh, missions have ended badly. And the only thing I can hope for looking forward is that we will remember these lessons when people call, call on us, call on the American people to support similar nation building operations in the future.
0: Chris Prevel is Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. You can read more of his work at cato.org.